uh, thank you to the worship team for leading. Um, don't you appreciate them? Uh, yeah. I'm very thankful. It's good to see some of you. I see some familiar faces and I see some unfamiliar faces. Please don't be strangers to my wife and I, Marlene. Marlene, wave your hand up here. She's, we've been, uh, this month we will celebrate our 46th wedding anniversary. So we've, yeah, we. That gets applause today in today's day and age, right? Yeah, that's right. Anytime it's been that long. But uh, I see some of you and I recognize some of you. We actually, and I mentioned this last week, but uh, Marlene and I were attending this church when we were married. So I actually came here in 1975 and was part of the church. And then in 1976, we were married. Marlene's Canadian. We lived in Canada a couple times. And, uh, and so we got married up there, but this was our home church. Uh, and then in 1977, we actually left here, this church in this city, to um, proceed to go to seminary and, you know, get degrees and all that kind of thing. And, and then uh, 29 years of pastoring and eight years as a superintendent and three years as, a, as missionaries and, uh, and 12 years as bishop over the denomination and working with uh, churches in 114 countries. We have about 40,000 churches globally, and uh, we got to, had the privilege of being able to lead in that. I actually had somebody one time ask me, and he said, so have you been in all of our churches? I said, no, can't, can't travel that broadly. Haven't even been in all the countries, but uh, we're, we're shy of 100 by a little bit. But uh, we've still been in a lot of different places, and so we've seen the work of the Lord in many ways and had, have had the opportunity to, to uh, proceed from there. But we have constantly in our life boomeranged back to Spokane. So this is actually our third time living here, and, uh, and all of our children are here. We have four of them. Well, one of them's not here. One of them, he hasn't really done much or attended any parties for the last 14 years. He's been in heaven, so he passed away of cancer in, in 2008. Um, his widow is still, uh, she remarried, and she's living here in town. But the other three that have the opportunity to be here are here with our eight grandchildren, so uh, this, is, this is really home for us for most of, the, most of the year. We're very grateful to be here. So it's good to see all of you. May I say, you look marvelous. This is a good-looking group. So as somebody asked before service, what do we call you? And I, uh, just please, no bad names. But, um, you know, I respond to Matt, that's my name, or Pastor Matt, or Pastor Thomas, if you want to be formal. And uh, different people say different things in different places. But I respond to everything but Pastor James. I don't respond to that at all. Never have, never will. So, but uh, James, you've got a wonderful pastor, and I'm grateful that he has the opportunity to take a little respite and and uh, grow. So, I think I covered all the data, didn't I? That pretty well covers the data, because typically I kind of dive right in into the Word, which is what we're here for, is to worship the Lord, uh, not to just hear about. Um, you know, the person is standing up and speaking, but then I find that lots of people ask questions later and say, why didn't you say that this morning? So I've, I've satisfied all righteousness there. Um, so what I'd like to do, obviously, when we're together, we want to turn our eyes heavenward. He's our Savior, right? And this isn't about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him and his redemption of us. Uh, we've had the privilege of seeing the hand of the Lord work miraculously with people around the world, and um, 
It's hard for me to know why God does stuff the way he does it. There are so many different ways that the Lord moves. He Sometimes he blesses us immensely, and sometimes we go through suffering. But in all of these things, God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you're not familiar with that, that is an actual Bible verse, Romans 8, 28. And um, I wanted to start this first month, the month of June, to talk about God's perspective, a God's eye view, a God's, well, this morning we'll talk about God's eye view, but we want to talk about the perspective that God has because as a pastor for many years, uh, I've had a lot of people come to me with whatever they're going through in life, and they say things to the effect that, well, you know, why did that happen? Or How do, what does this have to do with anything? Or that seemed to be a wasted uh, adventure. Or I thought I was being obedient but in being obedient to the Lord, it seemed to hurt rather than help uh, me doing the kinds of things that I believe God has called me to do or whatever. Have you ever heard those kinds of things? As a pastor, I've heard that a lot. And, uh, and so I want to talk a little bit about regaining or understanding um, how we regain or recapture a God's eye view of life and the world and all of uh, those kinds of things. The Lord, there's so many bigger things that are in store for us than what we necessarily see or the way that we see them. So um, as we walk through the Bible, I, I think we'll make it uh, pretty plain this morning what I'm talking about. So there are certain people in the Bible that can see things that others can't. Now, at, at the surface, we have a tendency, and I did this for many years, even as a pastor, thinking, you know, the verse in Corinthians where it says, but we have the mind of Christ, and we do have the mind of Christ. So we know right from wrong. We know uh, the presence of the Spirit when, um, you know, when the Spirit is here and we not understand what conviction is. And anybody who's come to know the Lord as Lord and Savior, they have the mind of Christ. Don't confuse that with having the wisdom for every circumstance every time. That's one of the reasons we have a thing we call prayer. Because you can have the mind of Christ, but you're not sure if you should buy that car or this car, or if you should stay in this job or that job. That doesn't have to do with your soul and your salvation. It has to do with making the wise financial decision, etc. I've known very godly people, very godly people that have the mind of Christ, but something happened and they didn't necessarily make uh, the, the best decision because what they saw or what they heard or what they thought they had, they really needed to lean heavily into the word of the, of the Lord for them, either through the scriptures, because they're impressions. I'll give you an example. I know a person who's a godly man. He's a wonderful man. He's a, just a saint, and uh, I've never seen him lose his temper or uh, anything. He always brings honor and glory to the Lord. Well, he found out through an email communication that his uh, granddaughter was, had disappeared, and these people could find her, etc., and she was somehow, these, the people who were going to find her were Nigerians, and they sent her an email, and they said for X amount of thousands of dollars, they could reach it. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? Yeah. Um, he's a very godly mind. He has the mind of Christ, but he lost $30,000 trying to do the good thing and redeem his daughter from that. That's what I'm talking about. So you can have the mind of Christ, but you don't necessarily have a God's eye view of every circumstance every time. So we have a lot of people in the, in the Bible that are holy people, godly people. Elisha wasn't the only 
godly person in his day, and yet he saw things that nobody else saw. There was a time when the king of Aram was whispering things that he wanted to do in his inner chambers, and Elisha knew what it was and preempted every one of the strikes. And if you've read that story in 2 Kings, uh, the king is wondering, you know, we've got it in an informant, you know, so we've got somebody that's in the room with us here that's uh, ratting on us. No, we don't. It's this prophet, Elisha, he knows what's happening even in the inner chambers. Elisha could also see a whole army of angels surrounding a town when nobody else could see the army of angels. That also is in Second Kings. You have uh, a passage that's all about faith in Hebrews chapter 11. The whole thing is about faith. And we even say, we borrow the Apostle Paul's line uh, from Corinthians that we live by faith and not by sight. So, so sometimes we kind of look at those two as adversarial. Well, not necessarily. Actually, we live by faith, but because of the faith that we have, if we have a God's eye view of things, changes our sight. So Hebrews 11 is a whole chapter that talks about people who live by faith. But do you know the word see, sight, look, all the cognates dealing with the idea of what you see, it's actually used nine times in a book that's about faith. It talks about Noah, you know, who, who could see that which other people couldn't see. In, in faith, he ended up building an ark. It talks about Abraham said he was looking for a city whose foundations or architect was who? God. So he was looking. He had, he had eyes that were seeing, but they were eyes that were based on a, on a spiritual life, not necessarily just a fleshly one. So faith and sight are not adversarial. Faith should inform our sight, not vice versa. It's not on the basis of what we see. We say, well, God must be doing this because this is what I see with my eyes. Are you with me? Please say yes. Okay. <laughs> you're going to have to learn. You've got to be responsive. I like to converse with a congregation, not preach at people, but talk with people, okay? So we're going to do it. This is the way it works. In fact, a church I pastored one time uh, a number of years ago, I told a joke and no one laughed. And I, you know, it's not fun when you tell a joke, and I, I thought it was pretty funny. So I said, hey, this is how this works. When I tell a joke, you laugh. And somebody in the back said, when you do, we will. So <laughs> I thought, that was even worse than nobody saying anything. So they didn't get my sense of humor. So, so anyway, yeah, you got the idea. It, it also talks in that passage in uh, verse 13 in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, trust me, this is there. You can actually go and look in your Bible if you'd like. But it says, uh, all these people were still living by faith when they died. None of, them, uh, none of them had received the promise that was given them. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. In other words, they were just still living by faith when they died. You know, Moses didn't see a... Uh, the, the people go into the promised land, and that was really what he was given. Uh, he died on Mount Pisgah out in Moab. He didn't quite make it there, right? But he knew God was going to do it. That's why for 40 years he was faithful taking the people there. And the promise to Abram that he was going to have a, a great nation, you know, that would come from his seed. When he died, he had one son of promise. That's it. There were no nations. And yet the promise was that the people, all the people on earth would be blessed because of him, etc. But it tells us he was looking for that. And they were all living by faith. Why? Because they could see something. They could see the goodness of God, and uh, they could live in that. So I won't go through all those passages, but you get the idea, the fact that there are some people that have the capacity to see. Here's the kicker. It's not on the basis of how spiritual or unspiritual you are. 
It's not. I mean, I know, like I said earlier, many godly people who don't see the circumstance as God sees it. I've been there. And that's why we have to be so reliant upon the Lord. So I'll give you an example from the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles and you want to open up, you can open up to 1 Samuel chapter 3. You won't see that on the screen for a bit, uh, because that's, we're going to see in chapter 16 in a few minutes. But uh, in chapter 3, uh, Samuel, if you remember, Samuel as a little boy, the Lord spoke to him. In fact, he said, called him by name, Samuel, and he said, he ran out to, to see what Eli had for him, who was the guy that was uh, leading the parade as a little boy. He was, the, he was the person at Shiloh. He was the high priest, or the priest at Shiloh, and uh, Samuel was his attendant, and he thought that Eli was talking to him. This is uh, back chapter 2 and, and early 3, where uh, he's kind of under his charge. But uh, the Lord was speaking to him as a child, and, he, and Eli finally said, with the Lord calls you again, you say, speak for your servant is listening. And so he listened to the Lord, and God spoke to him. In fact, it tells us by the time we get to the end of chapter 3 in verses 20 and 21, everybody knew that the Lord spoke to him, that he heard from the Lord. It says, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Now, if you want to know what that means, that means from Canada to Mexico. Okay, Dan is the farthest tribe north. Beersheba is the farthest city south in Israel at that time. And he says, in other words, everybody in the whole country knew that God spoke to the Lord, revealed himself to him. And so that's verse uh, 17, that uh, they recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet before the Lord. And it even tells us the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. And there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. So Samuel got it, right? I mean, he got it. You can say yes. All right, okay. This is not that hard, folks. Okay, <laughs> got to work with me on this. So Samuel got it, and so you can sit down and say, all right, he never missed it. He had a God's eye view because he did early on, so he could just ride on the seat of his pants his whole life because he knew exactly what the will of the Lord was in every circumstance. Well, I want just us to take a look at a passage of Scripture in chapter 16. We're going to be taking a look at that. It'll be on the screen. But uh, at this particular time, the Lord um, had called him and he said, I want you to go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. And there he has a son and you're going to anoint that son. And he's going to be this king in Israel. He's going to be the next king. And he has a heart after my heart. And, you know, he had said, he'd revealed some things earlier uh, in chapter 13 and 14 about him. But uh, in this passage, this is what happens. So Samuel is going, and he's got it figured out because the Lord speaks to him regularly, right? So he just shows up. I think what he did is he was, he was probably driving his car. I think he might have had an Audi. And uh, he's driving through the desert, and he's got the CD plugged in. He's listening to worship music. He's just having a great time. And he thought, oh, I'll just show up, and it'll be cl very clear who I'm supposed to anoint. So this is what happened. Uh, so he goes in. Uh, let's see. Yeah. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And Samuel said, how can I go if Saul hears about it? So he's kind of a little concerned about his own personal safety because if he's going to anoint the next king, what's the current king going to think? 
And what's he going to say and what's he going to do? So the Lord said, take a heifer with you. Say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So that'll be what you do because he was going to sacrifice. And he said, invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you're to do. You are to anoint for me the one I, read that last word with me. The one I indicate. Sure. So this is what happens. Samuel did what the Lord said when he arrived, for the most part, when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? And this is what he said. Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, okay, and thought... You have no indication that Eli, Eliab is the guy, but he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Let's go on. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height. He was handsome. He was tall. He was the eldest. Must be this one. Uh, for I've rejected him. Now, he wasn't rejecting him as far as salvation. He was, he was saying, this is not the one. And uh, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front. He's number two, and we'll get to the next one in just a few moments. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Then Jesse had uh, Shema pass, but uh, Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Okay, he had seven sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Now, he didn't know that he even had any more sons, but he had one more. He was a little kid. He was the youngest of the batch. His name was David, and David was out watching sheep. You know this story. This is great. This is going to be an awesome summer for me. <laughs> Many congregations, trust me, I say. And he had one more son. His name was Abraham, you know, whatever. So he asked Jesse, are, are these all your sons? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, uh, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, the Lord said. So the Lord finally did what? He indicated. Rise and anoint him. This is the one. Okay? So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of the brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel went to Ramah. Okay? So I think that should be probably the last verse that I have up there. Um, spiritual guy. Lord spoke to him continually. He got it. He had what we would say in New Testament terms, the mind of Christ. What did he do? Showed up and said, I'll figure it out. I'm a spiritual guy. I can get this. I got this. Um, and the Lord said, um, parenthetically, something that was very interesting in the middle of all this. He says, no, I've rejected this one. And did, did Samuel make that mistake again? No, no, he didn't. Abinadab, he said, no, this isn't the one. Shema, no, this is not the one. And the next and the next and the next and the next that remain nameless in this story. And he says, are you out of sons? Because none of these are that. Did he make that mistake again? No, no, he did it once. What did he realize in that moment? He realized after God had said to him, um, he said a, a statement that is a truism for everybody. It doesn't say 
you're looking at things as other people look at it because you're not an ungodly person, but I look differently than you do. No, he says, he says um, the Lord looks at the heart. You look at outward appearances. It says humanity. It says mankind. If we had a more gender-friendly, it wouldn't say man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. It would say people. Are you, you got it? All of us. Men, women, you're included in that. You don't look. It doesn't say ungodly people. It doesn't say partially immature Christians. It doesn't say anything else. It says humanity's tendency, what we look at, what we see, if we're not looking by faith and understanding fully the will of the Lord, is not what God's looking at. And I can give you a hundred examples of that in the Bible where all the godly prophets and apostles and everybody else was looking at something that they thought, surely God was going to do this. But when God didn't do it, they ended up throwing a why question out there. And somebody who was the only person that was attributed with this idea that the Lord speaks to that person and anybody from Dan to Beersheba can go to him because he has the mind of God, he missed it in that circumstance because he was riding by his spiritual seat of the pants. And we don't do that. And we have a similar story. I won't go and read all of it. You're probably familiar with it. It's in Matthew chapter 16 in the New Testament where there's uh, 12 disciples or apostles of Jesus. Jesus calls them. They follow him. And you'd say, okay, they're getting it. They're, getting, they're in the rhythm. They understand who he is. And he even gets and takes them up to a remote place. It's up in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Excuse me. It's up north. And this is in chapter 16, and he says, who do people say that I am? Well, some say that you're John the Baptist, some say you're one of the prophets, some say that you're, uh, you know, so the idea is you're Elijah or Jeremiah, or you're one of these great prophets, you're, you're somebody or a resurrected person in some way, but what about you, what do you say? And, he, and Peter speaks up and says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. It was the first human declaration that we had. We have several de declarations of demons up to that point <laughs> that he's the Holy One, the Messiah, the children. But, but here's a guy who knew. He knew. He followed Jesus. He understood uh, at least the basics about what Jesus was about, and he acknowledged that. And then Jesus starts telling him the fineries of what are gonna, what's going to happen to him. And later on in that passage, I believe it's verses 21 and 22, he comes to the place where uh, Jesus says, now that you know this, this is what's going to happen to the Son of Man. Son of Man is going to suffer many things, be put in the hands of the leaders. They will kill him and on the third day be raised to life. And what Peter heard was all this painful stuff. And, and what did he say? His response was, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. He, he had... He was as close to Jesus as anybody was close to Jesus at that time, other than maybe Jesus' mother. And Jesus turns around and called him a name I hope I never get. He said, get behind me, Satan. And then he says, you don't have in mind the things of God. He uses the same kind of term that he uses with Samuel in the Old Testament. What you're looking at, what you're thinking about, is not God's mind. Are you with me? happened in the New Testament, happened in the Old Testament. Godly people, I want to set the frame that you can be a godly person and not have God's perspective. And the reason I know that is I can tell you all the people that were wondering why on earth we weren't mad at God when our son died. 
They thought the natural response or sequence to a tragic event is you know, whether you give God credit for the good things or you don't, you certainly give him the blame for the bad things and you can't see anything that's good that's going to come out of this. Are you with me? Yeah. So there's this kind of mindfulness that's not a matter of whether you're a Christian or not a Christian that it can only be revealed when we are drawing close to the Lord and we're seeking him in every circumstance. It would almost like if Jesus were to lose a statement, he would say, you know, don't worry about tomorrow for every day carries enough load of its own, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is today. And all these things will be added to you as well. Are you with me? Uh, seek first. So you can be a real spiritual person, but if you're not a praying person, uh, you're going to run into trouble. I, I'm dead serious. It doesn't matter how godly you are. It, it's not about godliness. It's about understanding that God knows and sees what we will never be able to know or see. In fact, that's the Lord confirming it right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we have to be mindful of saying, God, what is your perspective? Now I'm going to tell a story of Virginia. It's going to be the second time you've heard this today. But it's, uh, it's, it's an important story. So Marlene and I, we went to the Philippines, and we became missionaries there for a season. I thought we were going for maybe life. I thought maybe we were saying goodbye to America, and we were going over there, and we were going to do ministry. And we dove in. I became the superintendent of a conference. Uh, I was pastoring churches. We planted, I don't know, about eight churches or something like that in the greater Manila area. And then when I became a superintendent, I oversaw church planting in other places all the way from uh, Benguet, Nilicos Norte, you know where that is, all the way down to, um, uh, we were in Batangas and, and, uh, and other places, and Surigao, and we have some people here who know where those places are at. But, uh, but it was a big area of the, the northernmost island of Luzon. And I was kind of oversaw our ministry and the churches we had there. And I was the president of a Bible college that we had there. And uh, then I became the uh, director of a seminary program that was there. So I dove in and, you know, and you have to learn the language and you have to learn some things about the culture. And, oh my, I made so many mistakes when I was there. I mean, it was really tough sledding for about uh, uh, the first two years. Um, uh, you know, I was new in the language. I was making mistakes all the time. I was telling people dumb things, you know, and I thought I'm saying this, but then I find out I'm saying something that's insulting. And, you know, you just, you kind of have to roll with it and learn. And somebody came to me and gave me a compliment after I'd been there about a year. They said, you speak our language very well. And I thought, well, thank you. And then they followed it up for a five-year-old. Ouch, ouch. So, but I did get better. But anyway, uh, so, so I was there, and we, we were there, and, and our kids integrated. They all had their own churches. It's a long story, but they kind of found churches that they liked. We don't have to follow Dad everywhere. He's planting churches. So, uh, yeah, we had little children that we sent away with our Filipino friends, and they would be gone for all day Sunday, and we'd gather together. It was a weird experience, but it was a wonderful one. And our kids loved it, and we loved it, and it was great. But then three years into this, the Lord makes it very clear that we're to leave and come back to the U.S. And I won't go into the reasons why. 
And we had already, I had already raised up leaders, Filipino leaders, for everything I'd been doing. So I kind of worked myself out of a job, if you're with me. So it became real apparent that I, we were to come back here. There was an opportunity to plant a church here in Spokane, Timberview. We came back and, and we planted that church. And, and uh, Lynn and John, my sister and brother-in-law, are here, and they were part of that plant. And um, so we got on the airplane, and I remember we clicked the, the seat buckle, uh, you know, and our kids were up in front of us, and I looked at Marlene, and I said, what was that about? I mean, we went to all that work to learn language, learn culture. We made some of the lifetime friends. There's still some friends. I communicate on Facebook, uh, instant message, every week. I've communicated already this last week four times with my Filipino friends. We, we, we were close. We were bound. My kids didn't want to get on the plane and go. That was home. Our oldest son said, you can go. I'm here. This is my home. And I thought, why, what was this about? Three years, and then we're gone. So I came back to the U.S. We planted a church here, and, uh, and I couldn't see. I couldn't see what I couldn't look at that experience as the Lord was looking at because I didn't know what God was up to. And, you know, we did positive ministry, and we had left somewhat of a legacy. I still have some people that, that I led to the Lord that communicate with me and all that. But for those of you that don't know, I became a bishop in the Free Methodist Church. I became one of the three people that oversee the global ministry. And there's a long story behind that. But So I was traveling all over, and one of the things... I was providing oversight for other churches, the Free Methodist churches in the western half of the United States and Asia, and, which is great because then I'm kind of going back. And I, when I was there, we started a missions organization, and I knew the leaders of all the Asian countries and where the Free Methodist Church was. And so I thought, well, that's great. So we started doing ministry in the various countries when I became a bishop. Now, take, keep in mind, I've been gone from the Philippines for 15 years, to 22, 23 years, you know, because I was a bishop for 12 years. And uh, the ministry was relatively effective. We had ministry in a country, because this is being broadcast, I can't really talk about uh, what country it is, but you're all wearing clothes from there. Um, and, <laughs> and we only had about 800 churches in that entire country, and it's the most populous place on earth. And we were able to strategically work to culturally get some of our uh, groups to collaborate together in areas they'd never collaborated, taught some principles on, on missions outreach in, among the uh, various minority groups and uh, majority groups in various areas of the country. Long story short, I was a bishop 12 years. By the time we left, there were over 5,000 churches, from 800 to 5,000 churches. And uh, so there was good growth. So toward the end of that, Marlene and I were invited to a goodbye dinner, and we went to meet with the leaders, and there were about eight people sitting around the table. And as we're talking, we get toward the end of the dinner, and we're getting ready to kind of say our final goodbyes as we're going to get on an airplane that evening and fly back to the U.S. And my translator, a very good friend of mine, and... Uh, and she's lived here in the United States for many years, but she's a native Mandarin speaker. Well, I just said where I was at. But she said, she said to me, uh, she started talking with them about at one point, and they were talking, and this is the way translation works, interpretation works. 
The person says something, the translator translates. Are you familiar with that? And then you say something and the translator translates. Well, she stopped doing that and she didn't have permission and I'm the boss. So she stopped translating for them. She just was listening and listening and listening. So I looked over and I said, um, and I called her by name and I said, what are they saying? And she said, just a minute. And not too many people would tell me as the leader, just hold, hold your pants, you know. And uh, so she kept going, and, uh, and then I asked, I waited politely, a little anxiously, a little disturbed, but about two minutes, three minutes later, I said, um, I need to stop you right now. What are they saying? And she looked at me, and she said, I'll tell you later. And I thought, what on earth? So I was not a happy camper, and I got up, and I went to the restroom, came back, we're in a restaurant, and I came back, and I sat there and kind of folded my arms, and I thought, okay, you're fired, you know? But uh, we got all the way to the end, and then there were our final goodbyes, and it was a teary goodbye and all that, and we embraced and said goodbye to everybody. We went out and got uh, in a taxi, and our interpreter was going to the same hotel we were in, and uh, she was sitting up by the driver so she could communicate where we were going. And Marlene and I were sitting in the back. And I said, uh, by the way, you know, what was happening the last 15 minutes that I'm totally aware, unaware of? And she said, oh, I'm so sorry. She said, I didn't want to embarrass anybody. I wanted everybody to speak freely. But they were all saying... Um, we're so thankful. We feel like we're all on the same page. We're moving in the right direction. God has really blessed the ministry. We've never had a Western bishop that has known how to lead us because they've not thought like an Asian. We finally have an Asian bishop. That's what they called him. And they said, he understands, you know, Nahia. He understands some of those characteristics of saving face and of... of uh, of how to work collaboratively with people behind the scenes and then how to bring things out in public in a way where it doesn't disturb the equilibrium or the relationship with the people. Anyway, they were going through this whole thing that had to do with leadership, not because of my godliness, are you with me, or my righteousness. It had to do with my, uh, largely with my experience integrated together with uh, hopefully our spiritual focus, our focus on Jesus. Are you with me so far? And um, so she finished describing what was going on. She, she said they were just so thankful that they had this experience and they were going back and sharing about their experiences with us personally and, and how helpful it was, it was in many ways. And we, she stopped talking, turned around to talk to the driver. And 23 years later, Marlene looked at me and said, that's what that was about. She was answering my question on an airplane at uh, Aquino International Airport in Manila 23 years ago. Because God had me there, us there, to do ministry there. It was very vital ministry. It was good ministry. But we were looking at it as it could only amount to anything if it had longevity to it. You follow? If it had certain kind of bulk to it. And God was saying, no, 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 no. You're doing ministry here. But my perspective is way bigger than your perspective. People can only look at their own experience and they can only get, gather and garner what they have from the Lord that way. And I've come as a person toward the end of my you know, ministry and, 
and uh, hopefully later in life, where I don't say, because I'm a godly person, because I've known the Lord for so many years, I can stop praying now. I don't have to consult the Lord on every decision now. I don't have to think and pray too deeply about, uh, about some of those things because, you know, I've made those similar decisions in the past and I can just go off of my, uh, my energies and my past experiences, etc. I'm good. I'm good. Thanks, God. Yeah, got your spirit in my heart. I'm good. I don't do any of that. And you'd better not do any of that. Because if you do, you're going to be asking the same kinds of questions when a crisis comes that everybody does, Christian or non-Christian. What on earth is God up to? Or why did he do this? Or does God hate me? Or I need to be angry at him because I don't understand or I can't see that. Are you following me? So I'm going to ask you to join me this summer to say, the only way I'm going to have God's perspective, because, I mean, Samuel, he really got it. And he says, and God says, parenthetically, not just to Samuel, but to all of us. You do not look at, it's not Christians or non-Christians, you do not look at what I look at. You have a tendency to look at the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. So I want you to stand with me, and the worship team's going to come forward. We're going to pray. We're going to ask the Lord's uh, help for us in our own spiritual walk to be able to see as God sees. And that, and trust me, folks, there's a lot of examples, and I gave them at the very beginning of the message of people that had the ability to see what others couldn't see. Uh, but they were on guard all the time because of that. Peter never made that mistake again. Did you know that? You can read your Bible. Samuel never made that mistake again because they learned that they wanted to have the eyes of the Lord, and so they consulted God in all circumstances. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this morning, the privilege that we have to be together. Uh, Lord, I thank you that we can, we can seek you, and I thank you that we have this opportunity for salvation. If there's anyone here who hasn't received you by faith, I pray that they'd open up their heart to you right now and just ask you to come into their life and forgive their sin and save them and redeem them from all of this. And then they at least have the opportunity to have your perspective. And I pray, God, for all of us who do know you, that we would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Lord, that we would seek you every day, that we would listen to for your voice, that we would stay true to your word, that we would dig into your word, that we would listen to the advice and counsel of godly people that you, and the prophetic that you've brought alongside of us, that we pray to you that we're constantly growing in our life because we understand that the stakes are so important that we see our own life and the life and the opportunities around us as you see them. And we'll give you thanks and praise for what you will be doing in us this summer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.